And the FBI said, Tom, you're going to have to wear a body wire for us. For so two, two years, I ran around wearing this body wire, getting people in conversations that they were, were of interest to the FBI about one time that they had done what I did. Or could I get somebody talking about like, you know, somebody inside these public companies leaking information to them. So I went around for two years uh, wearing this body wire. It was about an inch or two big. It fit in my front dress shirt pocket, getting people in conversation. So I had this dual role of also still being at my firm and also working uh, for the FBI undercover. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. At age 28, Tom Harden was a junior partner at an up-and-coming hedge fund. He was on track to achieve his dream job, but before long, he felt like he was falling behind in an increasingly competitive industry. A moment arrived when he made a decision to cross a very important line, and the rest is history. Tom was later charged with felony securities fraud and known as Tipper X became the FBI's most productive and prolific cooperating witness in Operation Perfect Hedge. A sting set up by the federal government in 2007 to 2012 targeting the hedge fund industry. The sting branched out in the largest insider trading investigation in 25 years, leading to over 80 guilty pleas or convictions. Since resolving his case in 2015, he was funnily enough invited by the FBI in New York City to speak to their rookie agent class in 2016 and now has built a consulting business and speaks on insider trading, conduct, risk, ethics, and compliance issues from his former frontline perspective. Tom is super educated. He holds a BS in economics with a finance concentration from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, this is a truly fascinating story. I came across Tipper X. I like to call him Tipper his story on the Rich Roll podcast and was just really taken by how a very honest kid with no seemingly troubled past, no issues with the law, and his youth made one decision and that decision changed the course of his whole life. It goes to show that sometimes good people do the wrong thing, and the consequences can be catastrophic. This is a conversation about ethics. It's a conversation about the slippery slope that we can often take once we decide to do that one wrong thing. And it may not even be as big as the context of this particular conversation, but we all know that once we start to miss that workout, we start to eat the wrong things, we start to develop the wrong habits because I do believe that doing the right thing is a habit. We can ultimately lead down that slippery slope into the abyss. So hope you enjoy the show. Leave us a review. Tell us what's working, what you think we can improve on. And as always, have a ripping week. Peace out. Tom, welcome to Ultra Habits. Uh, we started talking before the show about running. I wanted to make sure we got it on 
the actual interview for our audience, but we are super, super pleased to have you on the show and welcome. Thanks, RJ. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm going to call you Tom, although I think Tipper X is a pretty, <laughs> pretty cool name and we'll get into the story as to how you, you got that name. But look, it's funny because I, I don't watch a lot of TV, right? Like I'd say like watching TV is a treat for me, but uh, an old mentor of mine got me onto Billions. Right? Yes. He knows I was a fan of Suits. How close is Billions to the real life experience of Wall Street? They have some very good writers on that show. Um, I was never asked to be a consultant, but some of those storylines, it's, you know, it's, it's glamorized a little bit for, for Hollywood, but some of the storylines are pretty close to what I was dealing with um, as an undercover uh, cooperator for the FBI um, in, in that industry. So it, it, they've got some good writers, but it's a little glamorized, uh, obviously, for Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. It's a much better, I, I think it's much more glamorous than Suits. And I think the kind of the stakes yeah. are a lot higher. And I think it's a bit more complex, but you also kind of learn a lot by watching the show, understanding the mechanisms behind Wall Street. And as a fan of business, I kind of appreciate it is more of an educational piece uh, with obviously the, the drama that we all love, but let's take it back. So Tom, who were you before Wall Street? Where did you grow up? What's your story, man? Sure. I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, soccer player, uh, very good student, uh, public high school all the way through 12th grade. Uh, father worked for Coca-Cola there his whole career in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, oldest of two brothers, uh, mother stayed at home with the boys. So great, great upbringing, really supportive parents. Um, overachiever again with the grades. Uh, first of my, uh, anybody in my high school to get into an Ivy League college. So I got accepted to the University of Pennsylvania, the, the Wharton School, uh, a business there, prestigious school, had everything going for me. Um, graduated uh, 1999 and uh, started working in the hedge fund business uh, in the year 2000. So that's kind of my, before I started working where, where I was. Did you know as a young kid that you wanted to get into finance and commerce? Like, was that, were you like a Gordon Gecko era kid? Like, what was the go? How did, yeah. how did you get into that space? <laughs> not, not so much. I was even uh, maybe nerdier. I was into accounting. Like my friends that had very successful parents, they were CPAs. So I thought I wanted to do that. Uh, but I got to Wharton and then all these kids had their own trading accounts from their, their parents. And so they had been following the markets and then had those conversations at night in the dorm rooms about what's happening in the Asian markets and the European markets. And it's all together and reading the Wall Street Journal. So uh, really got into it in college, worked on the investment fund there. And it was just such an intellectually stimulating uh, thing to be thinking about because it never, never really closes. Uh, markets around the world are always open at some point. So really, if this happens here, this affects that type of thing. So for me, I was pretty hooked by sophomore year of college. I wanted to do this in some part, you know, when I graduated. Interesting because just an observation there, like people that typically get into accounting, you would say they're risk averse. Right. The transition to kind of the finance world, uh, investment banking, uh, stocks, hedge funds, all that, like, is that a significant shift from the accountant mindset? Like, do you find it's typically something that is not the norm? Yeah, and, and for me too, sort of the CPA was my age, you know, 15, 16, 17. So I'm still developing my, you know, my brain's still developing as far as what I want to want to be. I just knew they were successful. Uh, but then when I got to college, that was really ingrained, the risk-taking, 
the, the meritocracy. So it's kind of like flat organizations, these hedge funds. Uh, when you go to work there in your 20s, you could you could make millions of dollars if you pick the right stocks and you have a good boss that compensates you for that. So you're not, um, there's no BS. There's no uh, usually uh, politics at work. Like either you make money for your firm or you're going to be fired and replaced. So there is the risk taking to that. But I love that in my 20s, learn as much as I can and, and be compensated if I pick the right stocks or be fired if I didn't. I was willing to take that risk because uh, I, just, I just wanted to learn everything I could in my 20s about everything. When you got into Wall Street, like, I'm always interested to know at that level and the caliber of, you know, person that's working within those firms, like, were there people that were super disciplined, almost to the extent of an athlete to the person that was coked out, like, just like, blah, blah, blah. Like, what was the kind of archetype of the individual that was there? That's a great question. There was no one individual archetype that I could say translated to success or failure. You had uh, people that were coked up and drug addicts that were great stock pickers, but you also had the people who were like professional athletes. Uh, my, my boss has always looked at us as like a collection uh, of like, he was running like an NBA team and he had 12 people picking stocks and just wanted to, to make sure we had all the comforts and everything that we needed uh, to be able to perform our jobs. But you had some people that were really screwed up uh, professionally, personally, that were also great stock pickers. So there was a little bit of everything at that time. Mm. It's interesting. You can come at greatness both ways, right? By like having this real intentional, proactive system and way of living, but also, you know, people can be managed or people can manage themselves to greatness through the dark side. I guess it's kind of like Star Wars, right? Like, you, you know, it's the force, right? Like, how do you use that force, right? So you're now there in your early 20s. Like, what's your plan? How are things going? Are you making a shitload of money? Are you learning? Like, What's the type of firm that you're in? What, what's going on? Uh, I'm definitely learning uh, at a smaller firm. So I was probably making low six figures. So good money for somebody in their 20s, but not, not millions of dollars. Uh, but definitely learning, learning the craft. Uh, I also become aware that uh, insider trading is actually quite rampant at the industry at that time. And what I mean by that, RJ, is um, certain hedge funds would be able to get inside information and trade stocks on that. So they had contacts inside Silicon Valley companies, say an Intel semiconductor or an Apple computer, where they'd have friends uh, giving them information so they could trade the stocks and, and make money on those. There's really two events that move stock prices. There's uh, you know mergers and acquisitions where companies buy each other. And there's also quarterly earnings announcements four times a year where the stock prices move. So if you have that information and can trade the stocks, uh, you can make a lot of money. And so I was kind of shocked at first when I was 22, 23, 24, learning this was how some of the industry was playing. So not by the rules, breaking the law. But early in my career, I never felt that I had to be part of that dark side of the industry. I was picking good stocks. I was making decent money. Uh, I knew what was going on, but I never felt like I had to be a part of that uh, when I started in the business. That is really interesting. So, you know, I operate in a kind of the consultative space where I, it's my job to go into an organization and access information that will help us close deals. Right. So right. that means managing stakeholders, understanding the nuance of what's going on behind the scenes, you know, to me, what is extremely challenging is you're in an environment where everyone is pushed to performance, 
you're kind of you live and die by your results and it's almost pushing you to a a position where you would be looking to access information that would enable a competitive advantage right like it's right. a super gray area and like how often would you have seen someone receive insider information and not make a decision on it like oh look this is the wrong thing like what, like have you actually seen people not use that type of information for um very rarely at that time uh today and the work i'm doing today obviously it's it's that's a much that's pretty much the common thing to do you would restrict the stock until that information becomes public which is what you're supposed to do legally but at that time it was basically cutthroat performance driven um you know people would actually brag about oh you know, I know a fr I have a friend at this firm, he gives me information, or I have this uh, friend who at this law firm, she gives me information. It was just rampantly going on. Um, and I can't recall anybody saying, you know, I have information and I'm not going to trade on it. Because I think at the time people felt like, well, this isn't being prosecuted. Like, why not? You know, why not do it? You kind of feel like you're not hurting anybody uh, just buying a stock before everybody else. It's, a, it's an easy crime to rationalize. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I can see how that is super difficult. And were firms as blatant as having people on the payroll? Uh, not officially on the payroll, but there was, but like there was cash payoffs. Yeah yeah. 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 Like paper bags, cash payoffs, like that behavior from people that should know better uh, what was going on at the time. And in fact, I think over 60% of uh, companies that were acquired, so their stock price was going to go up the stock price would start running up weeks before the news became public. So this information was leaking in the market. And for me, my, my breaking point was one day, uh, my boss came into my office and said, we have to start looking for shorter term opportunities. What, what kept me safe up until this point was I was always investing longer term, three to five years. And I, I love with tech stocks, like when Google went public in 2004, after studying that for a few months, you could say, you know what? any yellow page stock is going to zero because Google is going to put the yellow pages. And again, I'm dating myself with this people, younger people not, might not know what the yellow pages are, but anything that's yellow pages is done. And so you could buy stock in Google and then short, which means bet against any yellow page stock and then make money. No matter what the stock market was going to do, Google would go up and the yellow page stocks were going to go down. This was great, but my goal became very short term from my boss one day to say, start looking for shorter term opportunities what was implied in that message from the boss was, I don't care how you do it. So I think it's really important, anybody who's in a leadership role listening or senior managers, you can't have ambiguity in these types of situations. Like, yes, we might be shorter term, but you can't say do what it takes or not say that and have this little dance about, okay, are you saying what I think you're saying? I didn't ask the question, but he said, start looking for short, shorter term opportunities and left my office. So what did you end up doing, Tom? So a few months after that meeting, I got an a insider stock tip from another investor in the industry saying a company uh, was going to be acquired in the public market next week. Uh, she gave me the date, the price, and the private equity firm. So you don't have to even be in finance to know this is illegal. This is like Blue Horseshoe from the movie Wall Street with Gordon Gecko. Like, this is straight up inside information. I didn't make any trades that day, RJ. Like, I knew this was wrong. But later that day, I talked to a friend outside my firm and, and he was losing money trading. We were talking. He's like, dude, you're hearing anything out there I could put a trade on? 
I said, I don't know. I got this call from this woman saying this might happen. Right there, by sharing that information, I've now broken the law and I haven't even traded yet. He buys a bunch of stock. He tells his entire firm. They all buy the stock. He calls me back and said, Tom, dude, did you buy some? And as the junior partner at my two-person firm, I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to talk to my boss as long as it was less than 1% of the assets that we manage. So if we managed $100 million for clients, I could buy a $999,000 position in the portfolio and not have to talk to the boss. So I hate to say it, RJ, but I bought stock and I rationalized it. I told myself, these guys are making millions. I'm just buying it small. I'm not hurting anybody. I said, I'll do it just this once and I'll never do it again, which is not true. I did it three more times. And I said, you know what? I could still think of myself as a good person and break the law, meaning none of my four trades were big. They were all small because I felt if I did them big, I would get caught. And uh, none of them were in my personal brokerage account because to me, that was bad. And there's this idea in social science where we all want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to cheat up the point we can do that. Rarely does it ever escalate to something like this, but that was my line of thinking at the time. And so that's how it kind of series of the rationalizations in my head happen up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I heard you talking about that on another interview, this kind of, um, you know, thing around cognitive dissonance. Why don't you tell our audience, talk about fudge factor. Sure. Fudge factor. So anybody that wants a deeper dive into this, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, Dan Ariely, A-R-I-E-L-Y on YouTube, his lectures on this. He's a, a, a leading behavioral economist now. So the fudge factor is we feel like we can cheat up to a certain point and still think of ourselves as a good person. Uh, when I was 17, I got my driver's license in Georgia. I would go 10 over, but not more than that, because my friends told me if you go 15 over, you might get a ticket, but you can go 10 over and be okay. Uh, when I was in university, RJ, you might remember um, about Napster um, back, back in the day. So again, when I give that my talk today, people are like, what's Napster? But I know people around 40 uh, remember Napster where... I, I stole a few songs every week, university. I just told myself the record companies were rich. And in 2003, I actually did some online gambling, which was illegal in the US. So I did all these illegal things, but I still thought I was a good guy. So by age 29, I get the stock tip. It's the same thinking in my head, even though the punishment is much more severe. It wasn't like I had to be Bernie Madoff um, to do this. Mm. And I mean, culture on Wall Street, would have been a certain way in the 80s and 90s, particularly I think the 80s and 90s because of the the, the context that deregulation set in Reaganism, I think. So there was already a culture of such within Wall Street, which then breeds the it's okay factor, everyone's doing it. For a young person that's trying to make their way from like, you know, down south in the big smoke, so to speak, right? Like, like all the conditions are right to do the wrong thing, right? So. How do you feel that Wall Street culture has changed, like for real, like after the GFC? After the GFC, I think it's gotten better. There's, there's a lot more training and it's really up to the head of the firm. Really, what's the tone at the top? That can be an overused firm, but it's an extremely important for the person who runs the firm to set the tone, the ethical culture of the organization. You know, there's going to be no ambiguity. If you feel there's ambiguous messages from your boss, ask the questions uh, to make sure you're on the same page. Um, don't make a decision in isolation. I always talk about, I made this decision in isolation, this idea of isolated decision-making. Like I didn't talk to my boss for clarification. Um, I certainly didn't talk to the compliance team. You know, I didn't talk to anybody at my firm. 
I made the decision on my own to cross that line. So especially during the pandemic, we want to try to mitigate any type of you know, decision-making and isolation, always ask the question. So mm. some firms do it better than others, but it's really hard to get away from short-termism and finance. You want to be able to think longer term, but it's so, so driven by the short term that we've seen. Even in, in Australia, there was a banking uh, scandal the last couple of years where Commonwealth Bank was mentioned. And, you know, the, the, the new CEO, what the old CEO was concerned about selling these insurance products to, to um, you know, their customers. And the CEO at the time said, you, you need to temper your sense of justice. So that's a terrible, that's a terrible message from the top. So this still actually goes on post the GFC. Yeah, yeah, we had the Royal Commission here, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about your situation. So you, you've done these trades and then you get caught, right? What happened? So there was four trades, all small trades. Boss never said anything. Personally, I made 46,000. So in the context of my career, a really small amount of money. Eight months after the fourth trade, the FBI approached me on the street. They said, we know about your four trades. It was a Tuesday morning. I'm on my way You're to the office. You're shitting your pants. Oh, yeah, <laughs> abso like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. <laughs> shitting my pants. They said, they said they knew I was down in Atlanta visiting my baby nephew for his baptism, and they knew his name. Oh, wow. So That's I thought, scary. holy shit, they know who I am. They're like, we know about your four trades. Um, come sit down with us. So I, I sat down with them. And they said, Tom, do you know of it, this going on in the industry? And I was like, of course, it's rampantly going on. You know, you guys are finally looking at this great. And uh, they asked me to help them build some of the cases in the industry. And I said, okay, should I talk to an attorney? And they're like, we'll let you know when you can do that. So uh, I should have known I could talk to an attorney that day. Um, I, I took their card, went to the work that day, was, was scared shitless, finally called the FBI a few days later. And I'm like, look, I honestly, RJ, I didn't talk to an attorney for a year. I didn't talk to an attorney at all. I said, I know about uh, you know this going on in the industry. What does it even mean to help you? And the FBI said, Tom, you're going to have to wear a body wire for us. For so two two years, I ran around wearing this body wire, getting people in conversations that they were were of interest to the FBI about one time that they had done what I did, or could I get somebody talking about like you know somebody inside these public companies leaking information to them? So I went around for two years uh, wearing this body wire. It was about an inch or two big. It fit in my front dress shirt pocket, getting people in conversation. So I had this dual role of also still being at my firm and also working uh, for the FBI undercover. Hey guys, it is RJ here. And we wanted to take a hot minute to thank you for all your continued support of the show. We truly do love you guys, man, and value all the support you have given us over those last two seasons so we want to make our impact more direct for you so do this screenshot this episode and make a post and tag us at ultra habits use hashtag ultra habits and we will give you not only a shout out on the following episode but i will follow up with you for a 10 to 15 minute conversation to talk about habits and what you can do to make your habits much more impactful in your life anyways we're going to leave you back in the capable hands of the guest enjoy the rest of the show peeps did they target high level operators and how did you get to these high level operators and did they train you how not to like fall apart? <laughs> yeah. So the first uh, question, yes, they were targeting very, very high people in the industry. So maybe a 47 year old hedge fund manager, I'm a 29 year old analyst at this time. 
I knew of people, sort of the six degrees of separation. I kind of figured out who I might know that knew them. We get introductions. I would say, hey, I'm thinking about switching my my firm. Uh, are you guys hiring? I just I did these four trades last year. I heard you guys do it too. And eventually, people would put their arm around me, sort of like as a bad mentor, uh, and start talking to me about what they did. And so, very powerful people I was in front of. Um, and as far as coaching me. I was supposed to ask the target a question, like a very pointed question. Hey, sir, remember two years ago when the insider traded? Like, what would you say if you were ever asked as to why you did that? And then pause and let the target answer. But it's a really awkward thing because when I started wearing the wire, in my mind, the person must know I'm wearing a wire because it's like, it feels in my mind, you know, two feet tall. They would say nothing usually. They'd look at me weird. I'd start talking to fill the awkward silence. The FBI would listen to it back and say, Tom, you know, you're not doing a good job. And I would say, guys, it's my first time doing this. Like, I've never done this before. You know, cut me some slack. So after a while, um, I got good at kind of taking their orders and doing what they wanted me to do. Yeah, like it's like people looking at you like, what? You're going to tell me? Like, it's a weird question to kind of, like, I think it would have been better to be asked over time, right? Like, you kind of meet with someone the first time and ask them if they had an affair on their wife. It's like, what? Why are you asking that shit? But, um, so you, you don't know how big this whole situation is, right? Until it goes to media. Like, how did you, what's Tipper X? Like, how did you find out about that? So I had no idea. By October of 2009, um, I had left my firm uh, around that time thinking my name might become public any day because these names were being leaked by the Wall Street Journal. The reporters would figure it out. So it's October 2009. I'm actually at the hospital with my wife. She's giving birth to our first child. I turn on CNBC and I see 20 people in handcuffs, the business news network, and the FBI calls me and they're like, Tom, you see what's happening on TV. This was all your work. And so all of a sudden, 20 people are in handcuffs. All these diagrams are coming out with their names, but there's one name that's still not revealed and it says Tipper X. And I quickly figured out after a few minutes, I called the FBI. I'm like, am I Tipper X? They're like, yes. I'm like, okay. I had no idea that I would be called Tipper X. And so I'm all over the newspaper as Tipper X and CNBC is saying, who is Tipper X? Who's the mystery informant that pulled this all together? And so I was living kind of in uncertain times. Would my name become, you know, released to the press uh, any day? And so between October 2009 and by January 2010, my name was finally released uh, in all the newspapers. Whilst you're an informant, like how are things at home? Like, is it super stressful? Is your wife kicking your ass? Because like, Tom, how can you do this? And then do you then become a leper in the industry once you're revealed? So I was only allowed to tell my wife I was doing this. I, I couldn't even tell my parents until my name became public. So the FBI approached me on a Tuesday morning, uh, scaring the shit out of me. I waited till Friday after work uh, to talk to her. I was having panic attacks, bed sweats. I wasn't sure if she would leave me or what would happen because we, we had just gotten married. We had no children. So there was an easy way for her to kind of bail if she wanted to. I told her after work uh, one Friday, you know, young couple in Manhattan, how was your week? I said, let, let me go first. <laughs> I have a story to tell you. I sat her down. She could see I was very serious. And I told her FBI insider trading. And she was like, wait, what? Like she wasn't expecting that. Like, I think she was expecting infidelity or something. And then I said it again. And I remember she said, you didn't do anything to hurt me. And 85% of marriages right there are JN. You know, the spouse married the hedge fund person, usually not, not Tipper X, right? So it wasn't easy, but she stayed with me and said, you know what, Tom, you got us into this, you're going to get us out of this. So whatever the FBI is offering you to do, you know, take their offer. 
Well, ultimately, she got pregnant during that period. So, I yeah. mean, she really chose to continue to invest in you. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point because we decided to start a family as I was a cooperating with you know with the FBI. That's right. What did the FBI tell you the outcome was be like? You'd get your life back, like you wouldn't go to prison. What? There was no hope. There was just I just felt like if I took their orders, it would work out for me in the end in terms of my sentence. Maybe maybe there would be no prison, or maybe they would even drop the charges. I was so delusional at one point. I thought they would hire me to be like a professional cooperator. I just thought this is going to all turn out great. And of course, the punchline is nobody cooperates professionally. Like, it's like they're going to use me until they can't use me anymore and then release my name to the press. Um, ultimately, I was sentenced in 2015. Like, it took seven, six to seven years to actually be sentenced. And I got no prison time because of my cooperation, but it just took forever. I was in this purgatory, you know, all the time about not being able to restart my life for, for things I did to myself and my family, of course. But um, it was hard to restart because I was never sentenced until, until 2015. In many ways, you've been able to leverage that, though, in terms of becoming a professional on the back of what that experience did for you. Can you share with our audience now what you do and how that evolved? Yes. And I, I never had any plans to ever talk about my experience. Um, I threw away my career at 29, very ashamed of the decisions I made. My 30s were kind of lost. Um, and then in 2016, I got a phone call from the FBI and I thought, holy shit, you know, what do these guys want now? My wife was kind of like, what did you do now? I, I, I didn't do anything. I was in the kitchen making coffee. <laughs> so like, I swear to God, by this time we had two children. I was a stay-at-home dad. I was very happy that she could work. And the FBI was like, Tom, you know, Tom's case was so interesting. You were the youngest guy we charged. And the 46,000 was like the least amount of money anybody made of the 80 people that they arrested. So kind of the, why'd you do it, Tom? So I went and spoke to the rookie agents at the FBI Manhattan about the rationalizations we talked about. And a couple of FBI agents were like, man, you could go out there. There's potential. They called it go make lemonade out of lemons. So like our, our poacher turned gamekeeper, sometimes people call that like. Hacker turned hacker catcher. Yeah, yeah hackers ha hackers are a big, are, you know, big out there speaking now. So I always felt that that would not be something for me because I'm an analytical introvert. Uh, very disappointed myself in what I did. It strained a lot of relationships. And I also felt like people that did this never really accepted responsibility. It was always like, oh, let me go monetize my crime. So some of the world common Enron people did that and it didn't look like authentic. But I did it. I started just doing it because I had no other options as far as employment. Cold, I cold emailed 300 people in New York. Hey, it's Tipper X. Could I come talk to your company? Only got uh, two responses. One uh, invited me to speak, didn't, wasn't going to pay me, but said, you know, telling a story about me sitting in, in his team's seat, what I did, how the pressures were there, the ambiguity, told the story um, and got comfortable telling the story. It's never an easy story to tell. Got some referrals and it just kind of spread all, all over the world the last couple of years as far as compliance and ethics training. Um, I have the opportunity to share the real world story about where was I in my 20s? What was I facing? How has a lot of that not changed in the industry? And what can we do about it before anybody, an employee is ever in this type of situation where the FBI, you know, was talking to you about something you did. So that's what I do now. It's a real world kind of compliance and ethics training. Um, and I have courses now too during the pandemic, uh, just very similar to my, my story. What are some of the things that I know, you know, we talked about, you know, fudging factor and what are some of the behavioral traits and narratives that people tell themselves to justify what they're doing and how could firms 
create the right compliance and culture to ensure that people don't do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of the common rationalizations I hear about, sometimes a company will have me in where they've had their own issue with an employee with uh, either misconduct or that type of thing. And it comes back to, to some rationalizations. It's often, you know, uh, what I'm doing is not material. So trying to say this is really an immaterial decision. Uh, I told myself my trades were immaterial. They were very small. So that's a common rationalization. A way that people can push back on that, if you hear that from a colleague or a client or a supplier, like, hey, uh, this, this, this amount might be material to somebody. How would this look to other stakeholders? How would this look um, outside of this conversation? Uh, materiality is a big one. Um, sometimes it's, it's obedience to authority. So, hey, I'm just taking an order from my boss. It's not my responsibility. Like, I don't have to take ownership of this. My boss is just telling me to do something unethical. Um, I think we can push back on that and say, you know what, if you make the decision, you're going to be held accountable. So that's often a thing I see in corporate misconduct where it's somebody just telling themselves they're following orders. And, you know, another rationalization is, you know, I know this isn't quite fair for the customer, but I want to be loyal to my boss, my company, uh, my group, and just think about how we frame loyalty in decisions sometimes. Like, are we more loyal to the group? or the boss because of the short-term bonus, or are we more thinking about the long-term relationship with the client? So these are situations that come up a lot in my talk. The problem is a lot, a lot of times in corporate America, we just wanna fire the bad actors. Like we wanna say we had some bad apples, we fired them, we trained our people more, and we never addressed the barrel. So it's sometimes easier to say, like at Wells Fargo, oh, we got rid of thousands of bad apples that were selling uh, you know, too many products on the West Coast of the US when we never really want to look at the barrel. Like, why do we have so many bad apples more than our competitors? You know, looking at the barrel is sometimes hard for people and for boards to do uh, today. And so what could boards and management teams do to manage that barrel? I mean, I know compliance people are sometimes locked in the closet, kind of like HR people. Like, how can compliance people start to gain more influence and... I suppose, indoctrinate the firm in a culture which isn't facilitating the apples that are bad. Yes, uh, compliance, you're right. Even to this day, doesn't have much respect. Sometimes it's a support function or nameless, fameless or faceless or when the phone rings, oh, oh, it's compliance. Oh, you're in trouble. Like compliance, I hate the term compliance. They need to change their name. Like it's just like a bad, like- It's like risk management. It's like- yeah, yeah like, and, the, and and even worse than compliance is the compliance officer. So like, all right, there, there's a police officer, right? To catch you in wrongdoing, where actually compliance is there to protect you, like for career protection. And so it's it's important for compliance to be viewed as like a, like a partner to the business, not just a support function, but it's incumbent on the compliance officer to maybe get a seat at the board or have somebody on the board uh, that has some compliance background. Um, so that's, that's a challenge where there's not that mutual respect. Um, Boards where companies get in trouble, sometimes the boards, um, I'll, I'll speak to boards, they have a tendency, a culture, not to welcome challenge. So, you know, sometimes it, it can be that. It can be a tendency to promote good news and delay bad news. So if you have that type of culture at the board level, there's the opportunity for misconduct to happen. Certainly what happened in, um, in Australia with some of the, the, the Royal Banking Commission investigations. And just less than complete transparency can be a problem too. Yeah. I mean, I think from an organizational perspective, culture is the compounding effect of habits, 
right? Like what you just mentioned is really effectively habits and actions that firms could take to start to shift the lens on compliance. And I think it's important, not only within the finance sector, but all kinds of, you know, different industries where, you know, you've got the pressure of short-term results, the implied from the management team of get there by any means necessary um, and this kind of ambiguity. And I think if we can start to kind of reduce that ambiguity by clear lines of what's right and what's wrong, then we're on the right path, right? Yeah, I think subordinates too have to um, practice a muscle memory, like anticipate situations you might be in. So sometimes your boss gives you a directive, which sounds unethical, but they're really trying to get to the goal or the outcome in an, an unethical way. But the way you take it is, okay, they're asking me to do something unethical or illegal. Ask the clarifying questions. I never asked my boss in my 20s, hey, do you think insider trading is okay? Now, he never questioned my success, so that's something else. But usually, hopefully, in your situation, for somebody listening that's younger that might be under the pressure of a boss, you know, pushing them in that direction, just ask the clarifying question, you know, hey, I know you don't mean to do this, something that's illegal or unethical, but what about thinking of it this way? If you can think for your boss what they're trying to get to, but reframe it in a way that makes you feel better and more ethical about it, I think that's, but it's important for the junior people to have that sense of organizational justice. Too many times I'll speak to companies where they have speak up on the wall everywhere, but there's never the listen up. So the junior people never speak up because the listen up is not there. No psychological safety. And yeah, so <clears throat> we'll start to bring it to a close. One of the interesting, interesting um, kind of things kind of will digress for a second is um, I'm in I'm in 12 step recovery and uh, I'm in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know one of our sister fellowships, Gamblers Anonymous, when people get sober from gambling, they're actually not allowed to trade. Like it's not, it's not like a rule, like they, but it's suggested that they don't actually trade um, because it's a form of gambling. Do you think that trading is a much more sophisticated version of gambling and inherently with gambling, you're always going to push for the win, for the advantage. Like, is it is simple to say that trading and that world that you are living in is high level gambling and thus people are always going to look because emotions are high, high finances involved. There's always going to be a tricky overlay there. I think people can get caught up in that sort of addiction of being similar to gambling. If you really become much more shorter term focused on uh, the next profitable trade, uh, and not thinking about kind of the, the longer term. So my advice to people that are younger is always think about where you want to be in 10 or 15 years and then work backwards and kind of focus on that goal. Um, but I think, yeah, you, you can, it's easy to fall prey to that, um, that, that mindset, that, that addiction, if you're really focused on just the short term, just uh, the opportunity, because the worst thing can be, uh, you know, you actually have to walk away from a profitable trade because it's the right thing to do. Um, and so people sometimes struggle with that. Like, no, you, I actually have to like give up making money because, um, you know, what you're doing is, is unethical or potentially even illegal. And I think it's even harder when someone's doing it for themselves, right? Like they're invested in their own kind of, uh, you know, their own money into stocks and they think they have some inside information, but look, I, I think we'll leave it there. Tom, 
talking about Tipper X, but uh, <laughs> really, really insightful. I think uh, very interesting conversation. I really love the fact that you've been able to leverage purpose out of something that was really a negative experience for you. It's really great to see you out there doing your thing. And I think it's something that is increasingly important uh, post GFC, obviously, and globally important for our audience that want to learn more about you. Tom, where can they find you? Sure. I'm tipperx.com. So T-I-P-P-E-R-X.com. That was my FBI code name. And now I was able to trademark trademark that. Um, so I'm out there there. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all my information is there, the speaking, the courses. And then I am I am tipperx on, on Twitter and then on LinkedIn too. You just look up Tom Harden, tipperx. I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me questions about this or that. I always answer them, get back to you. Just like, you know, these situations in life can go one way or the other. So happy to talk. Well, we appreciate you here at, uh, at Ultra Habits, Tom. Thank you so much for your time, man. Great. Thanks, RJ.